Hey everybody, it's Nathaniel Avila reporting from Dallas County and I'm here with Ruby also from Dallas County and we come to episode two of uh, this podcast. The whole 360. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is our going to be our to be continued from the last episode because we were going into the uh, history of Mexico um, in itself, you know, like as a country up and coming and then also the transition from when, you know, Mexicans actually started coming over into America. Mm-hmm. And so the last time we stopped right before we got into the Mexican-American War. So that's what we're going to go into right away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that was May 12th, 1846. Um, this is exactly like when the U.S. actually declared war on Mexico. And there were two reasons why, you know, it led up to that, um, mainly because there was so much dispute over Texas, of course, because mm-hmm. um, Texas, as we all know, um, was part of Mexico. And so um, there was disputes over Texas, and then there was also the desire to acquire land in New Mexico and California mm-hmm. that led to that. Um, so once the U.S. declares war on Mexico, they send in Zachary Taylor to invade the northern part of Mexico, while at the same time they set up blockades, you know, on the Mexican coast of uh, New Mexico and California. So this is when, you know, um, U.S. is like basically like they, uh, the Mexican army is like no match for the U.S. at this time. So they've won so many wars, you know, up until this point, the U.S., so they're already equipped to fight. And so Mexico is getting defeated pretty badly at the beginning of this war. Yeah, USA, USA, USA. (laughs) But Mexico refuses to quit. So, you know, we got that stubbornness in us, right? (laughs) Okay. So then... Um, you know, the U.S. is like, okay, we got to stop this. We just got to shut it down completely. So they go ahead and they send General Winfield Scott to um, capture Mexico City. Um, And this happens on September 14th. When this happens, that's whenever Mexico finally decides to sign a treaty, um, which is the Treaty of Guadalupe. That's the name of the treaty. It was signed February 2nd of 1848. So pretty much the war went on for like, what, two years from 46 to 48. Um, In this treaty, it says that the uh, Rio Grande River, that river, becomes the southern boundary of Texas and California and New Mexico are seceded to the U.S. So the U.S. ends up, of course, gaining more land. And um, the U.S., though, has to pay 15 million as compensation for the seized land, which is half, basically half of Mexico's territory that they took away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was the short version of the well, Mexican-American yeah. War. Was, Do you uh, have anything to add that I may have missed? Well, this, yeah, well, this was a gross simplification of, oversimplification of the Mexican-American War. Uh, we have both highly suggest that you, like, look into... The many other aspects within this war, because there's like a bunch of stuff that happens. But 
Uh, well, why don't you name like a couple of those things? Because like I wouldn't even know either. Or where could we go find them? Um, I don't know. Maybe the history ch- history channel has some good stuff. Uh, history. Uh... <laughs> uh all right so let's see uh yeah so the mexican-american war is one of the most consequential events of mexican americans in the united States history right so in 1846 u.s general captain general stephen w kearney marched into new mexico where he faced little resistance from the mexican uh residents of santa fe so so we installed a local elite nuevo mexicanos as the head of the provisional military government which largely placated the residents of the territory. Um, right, because here we have, you know, people who are living there already in New Mexico and California, and, you know, that's part uh, part of Mexico, right? Right. Um, and all of a sudden they see, you know, the U.S. troops, you know, coming and they're blocking their shit, you know, so it's like, yeah, of course there's going to be stuff that happens you know i'm sure that there's a lot of things that happened in new mexico and california Mm -hmm. and all of that so yeah yeah, definitely look that up yeah and also his first public speech to residents kearney's first public speech he proclaimed the forthcoming equality of the american regime claiming that both the strong and the weak the rich and the poor everybody is equal before the law and will be protected by the same equal rights do you believe them? Um, no, because they were still grossly, grossly not specifically talking about African Americans. Okay, yeah, true. And Native Americans, mm-hmm. for that matter. So, oh, yeah. so yeah, that. I was... mean, how can you say that? And then you know, like, but they're like, but we all know, right? We all know who we mean, right? Wink, wink, right? We like... the people. <laughs> We the people don't mean all the people. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yep, that was the Mexican-American War. Now the Mexicans are out. The Americans are in. And that's pretty much where it stays for the rest of history. Right, but I want I want everyone to realize, you know, that because a lot of people from, especially like in Texas, We'll sit there and say, "Go back to where you came from," and it's like, "But this is Mexico. This was Mexico. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> it was not the U.S. Yep. before." So yeah, that was we're uh, exactly where we were, or we're supposed to be. Yeah, that's what happened with my family. Uh, my family stayed in Texas back when it was uh, part of Mexico, and we fought with the Tejanos. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's rich. Um. Mm-hmm. I was going to say something about Texas specifically again. Oh, like imagine if there was like an alternate universe where they didn't, you know, they didn't win. Like Texas, the U.S. didn't win and Mexico, Texas was still a part of Mexico. Yeah. I wonder if there's like that an alternate history hub because there is a, a, a website or a YouTube channel called Alternate History Hub, which does things like that. Let me see if they have Oh, one neat. For, yeah. I did not know that. That's Al- so cool. Alternate History Hub. They have like a bunch of stuff like that. Um, but it's basically like theories, right? Yeah. I mean, it can only theorize. Remains Mexico. Let me see if that that is a thing. Um. Yeah, here it is. What if Texas lost the revolution? 
so yeah there's one we'll link it in the description we'll see what they have they also have one about uh what if texas remained its own country Oh gosh, yeah, I remember that 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 short period of time when Texas is, was its own, like it didn't belong to the U.S., it didn't belong to Mexico, it was its own republic. Oh yeah, and then we were like, oh, we can't do this, we we need help. So um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so the Mexicans are out, Americans are in, and that's where it, that's how it kind of pretty much stayed. Uh, so that starts what is known as the early American period. So the early American period in the U.S. Southwest was a period marked by violence and land loss. Because what else would it be? Right. Uh-huh. So That's under- what everything mainly in history is composed of. Mm-hmm. So under the terms of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, all Mexicans were granted formal citizenship rights as American citizens. Yet widespread dissatisfaction emerged amongst Amer- the, Amer- the Mexican Americans. So despite the treaty... Pledges of full equal citizenship, rampant discrimination, and violence were immediate and widespread. So, yeah, I see you. I'm not proud of you guys. I'm not proud. Yeah. So what happened? So it looked like whoever was living in these areas, automatic American citizens. But even that, that didn't really help. Um, Because they were so discriminating against them. Yeah. So, yeah, keep in mind, uh, during this time, Mexicans were viewed as the enemy, which would eventually, like, the same thing how we would view the Confederates and then the uh, the Nazis or the Germans and then the Nazis and then the Soviets and then Al-Qaeda and then ISIS and then I don't know who it is now. Uh, but we, they were, that's how they were viewed. They were viewed as amongst that group. Okay. Now it's anti-vaxxers spreading misinformation. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> misinformation. Uh, misinformation, yeah. period. Mm-hmm. So realizing that partial uh, pre- uh, potential dissatisfaction which the former Mexicans would face as American citizens, Mexico's president, Jose Joaquin de Herrera, issued a recolonization plan in August 1848, which promised economic resources for land for any former Mexican who returned to Mexico. So Mexico was like, hey, come back to Mexico and we'll we'll treat you right. We'll give you the good stuff. <laughs> would you would you take that offer? I don't know because I I don't think so because I, I don't think things were that well off in Mexico either. I mean they still totally were under like a dick kind of like a dictator even though they claim democracy but mm-hmm. it's pretty much another dictatorship right so the commission hired three commissioners to recruit uh repatriates father ramon ortiz y miera the new mexico commissioner encouraged resettlement by criticizing the inferior status of the treaty citizens so such arguments had a strong recon- re- uh, resonance for the former former Mexicans, as twenty five percent of the country's Mexican American population repatriated after the war, so a quarter of them did. Mm-hmm. So yet the United States, despite guaranteeing the rights of former Mexicans to return to Mexico, developed legal arguments in order to re to institute formal barriers against this resettlement movement. So the U.S. Secretary of War, George W. Crawford, even claimed that repatriation was prohibited 
because New Mexico served as the primary buffer between Mexi American settlers and indigenous groups. So the U.S. believed it was in their best interest if the treaty citizens remain in the U.S. to remain a civilized presence in the region and protect against native encroachment. That was a bunch of bullshit. Really? Yeah. So if you're wondering why we have like such harsh borders, that's why. To keep the Mexicans in. <laughs> yeah, not out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in, in 1850, the U.S. Census counted approximately 80,000 Mexican treaty citizens living across California, Texas, and New Mexico. Uh, they skipped over Arizona, but, you know, who cares? It's just desert anyway, <laughs> right? <laughs> so New Mexico was the largest United States territory at the time with around 61,547 inhabitants, about 75% of whom were former Mexican citizens. So the majority of Nuevo Mexicanos lived in rural communities with populations with fewer than 1,000 people. So according to the 1850 census, the three most common occupations held by Nuevo Mexicos, Mexicanos were farmer, laborer, and servant. So. Wow. Sounds a lot like the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so they pretty much didn't have didn't have a good a good well-off start. Right. And I think that's only just for the men. I think for the women it's a lot less. It's a lot worse. Mm -hmm. What What would you be like? Nurse, like not like nurse, but like housekeeper. I mean, yeah. I mean, servant, basically. Also, servant. Okay. Right. I mean, it's <laughs> servant. So, in South Texas, Tejanos lived in a three-tiered society. So there was like a society thing. Um, at the top were the landed elite who owned huge ranchos, many of which had been granted by the Spanish colonial empire and turned into haciendas. The elite retained their economic uh, dominance through cattle ranching. Small landowners occupied the second rung of the South Texas economic and social ladder. These landowners lived in one-room adobe houses and spent most of their time caring for their horses and cattle. So finally, the South Texas had the third lower class composed primarily of peons, vaqueros, and cartmen. So peons had a status above the slaves in antebellum Texas, but below that of free men. Yeah. Like, how would you keep up? How do you keep up with all that? How would I keep up with all that? <laughs> how do you keep up with, oh, wait, I'm supposed to treat this person this way and you're supposed to treat that person that way, like... Oh, you mean the societal things? Oh, so, yeah. yeah, that would be really hard. <laughs> this is very complicated to be this racist. Right. Okay, so peons worked at a direction of the patrons, planting and harvesting crops, uh, herding goats, digging wells, and doing any sort of manual labor necessary. So they lived in tiny one-room haceles, huts with walls of mud, or any other material available and thatched roofs. So Anglo migrants to Texas believed that uh, the Haceles were evidence of the Tejano's subhuman and primitive nature. What? 
How were they subhuman and primitive? Because they Just, lived in huts. Because they lived in huts. Yes. There's no other way. If you wanted to see what one looks like, um, let me show you. And then the vaqueros were basically the cowboys. Yeah. The first cowboys. Yeah. This is how it looks like. Mm. That's pretty much where they lived. Well, I mean, they didn't have a choice, did they? Not really. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I heard that cattle ranching was like, like people were getting rich off of it in the South because so many people in the East were demanding cattle, like meat, like they wanted meat. They wanted their steaks. Yeah, we need the steaks. Yeah. So, meanwhile, in California... Native-born Californios mostly lived in small farming and ranching communities in the south. The two largest cities in 1850 were Los Angeles, with a population of 3,500, and Santa Barbara, where 1,185 people lived. While the elite Californios, such as Pablo de la Guerra and Luis Maria Peralta, held political and economic power in the state, they represented only 3% of the population in 1850. So the vast majority of landed Californios were substance farmers who based their livelihood on their small plots of land. In the southern coastal regions, business ownership and manual labor were also common occupations for general Californios. For the indigenous people of California, <laughs> oh geez. So, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo's failure to ensure full citizenship and protections had dire consequences. They were subjected to systematic genocide funded by the state of California. So, the California genocide killed around 90% of California's native population during the early American period, clearing the way for full-scale Anglo colonization. And that's why we say stolen land and colonizer. Mm -hmm. and then because those are the correct terms. Yeah, they killed 90% of them. So that's, that's no bueno. So what do you think about like the uh, Mexican-American uh, politicians only representing only 3% of the state? Only representing 3% of the state at mm -hmm. that time. Yeah. When there was so many mm -hmm. of the people yeah. there. Right. Well, that's, that, that's not fair. That's not enough representation at all. <laughs> right. So over time, so the social, economic, and legal position of Hispanic Mexicanos diminish, largely through political disenfranchisement and large-scale land loss. So these two processes were facilitated through the elimination of political, linguistic, and property rights. In two decades, Anglo-Americans seized complete control over apparatuses of political power across the U.S. Southwest. So now, now you gotta you gotta remember that this is also you're talking about the area where the rise of the KKK began. Once they freed the slaves, right? Freed the slaves. <gasps> Quotes. <laughs> because they were not free oh, okay. <laughs> even after they were free mm -hmm. so yeah oh listen to this next story this next story is kind of sad you ready to hear it 
sure. Is that a yes? <laughs> is that a super yes? So It's not a super yes. I don't want to be sad. So Jose Manuel Gallegos was sworn into Congress in 1853 as the first Nuevo Mexicano territorial representative to Congress. Hooray! Good job, Ruby. You did it. No, oh my God. What? I want to. I really do want to sometimes. <laughs> to run for Congress? Something. I just found out yesterday that the senator has no term limits unless somebody like challenges the seat. So Ted mm-hmm. Cruz could, could essentially be senator forever. Oh, yeah. If no one ever runs against him. And I'm like, that's not okay. Do you think O'Rourke would ever run against him again? Because I know he tried that one time. They got really close. I think O'Rourke is trying to gain traction to go actually go against Abbott. Abbott? For governor. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think he's going to do that. I hope he too. does that. That's good too. But someone definitely needs to run to fucking get Ted Cruz out of his seat. Mm-hmm. Because he's another one that we need out of there. Yeah. So, but the only thing is, this Gallegos guy, he only spoke Spanish. He could not speak English. So, which was not a problem for his first two terms. After he successfully ran for a re-election in 1856, however, his bilingual opponent, Miguel A. Otero, contested the election results so he lost again but this otero guy contested the election results so otero Mm -hmm. claimed gallegos's inability to speak english disqualified him so gallego made an impassioned self-defense in spanish in the house floor where he protested the disappointment he felt from the sneers of his colleagues nevertheless Otero's bid was successful, and they overturned the election, and he replaced Gallego as a territorial representative of New Mexico. That sounds like a cheat. Mm-hmm. So he lost the election it's only on the... Madness. So he only lost... He won the election, fair and square, but they overturned it only on the basis that he couldn't speak English. Yeah. How does that make you feel? Yeah, that's definitely, like I said, it's sus. Definitely sus, because that's cheating. Mm-hmm. So, California's first U.S. Senator, John C. Fremont, introduced legislation for the federal government to arbitra- uh, arbitrate land claims settlements. So, after the removal of Article 10 from the Treaty of Guadalupe, uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo, treaty citizens were stripped of any formal protection of their land rights. So after gold was discovered in Sutter's Mill in Calorna, California in 1848, a massive migration flooded the state, sparking the gold rush. By 1852, the population of California had grown from 8,000 in 1848 to 260,000. That's a huge thing. So these gold miners were largely landless and asserted ownership over over California lands. The California Land Act of 1851, also known as the Gwynn Act, after California Senator William M. Gwynn, created a presidentially appointed commission to settle disputed claims between the landholders and the Anglo miners. So yeah, so the miners are just coming in, be like, I own this land because I say so. And then the Mexican-Americans who actually own the land, they're like, no, you don't. It's mine. And then you're just like, prove it. They're and like, this is the American way. This is the Come American on. way. Right. You should know this by now. Mm-hmm. 
So in California's post-war years, land proved to be the most contentious and sought-after commodity. So the California Land Act of 1851 established a commission to determine the validity of Spanish and Mexican land grants. In order to prove ownership of the property, landowners needed to provide both evidence of the initial grant as well as submit proof that they had made structural and pastoral improvements to the land. If they could not... What the fuck? <laughs> if they could not prove, Anglo squatters were free to claim ownership if they had improved the land, and which is a contentious claim which is often difficult to disprove. So, what do you say about that? Damn it, it's super hard. Like, imagine you fucking living at your house and they come and they tell you, oh, you got to prove that you bought this house and give me all this paperwork and update all this shit, like, right now or else they're going to take it over. Like, what? Like, <laughs> this is my house. <laughs> uh, Actually, you think it's mine now? Unless you prove that it's yours, it's mine. Like... I don't have to prove shit. I was here when you got here, meaning I was here first. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I need you to see your receipt. <laughs> and then he puts like his head up on his your table. Literally, there's nobody else here but me. Like this is my house. <laughs> okay. So additionally, because of any of the initial Spanish and Mexican uh, decenios grants were vague, merely describing the mate- uh, the natural boundaries of the property. Contestants over the boundaries of ranchos were difficult for the Californians to prove. So all documents submitted in support of the claim also needed to be translated into English. Uh, Some firms like Halleck, Peachy, and Billings gained popular reputations as friends to the Mexicans. So for helping the Californians navigate the new American court system, but most land lawyers used the situation to their advantage drawing out the cases and charging exorbitant fees for their services and not winning either yeah i mean they don't care yeah (laughs) as long as they get the moolah and in most instances land claim cases often proved simply too expensive for most californios to litigate so while the majority of the cases were ultimately ruled in the favor of the californios the average wait time for a case to be resolved was 17 years They know this is not logical, right? Like, they know that they're just being stupid, right? Yeah, because... Like, tell me this is just them being fucking bullies. (laughs) Yeah, and then it's basically like, like you said, somebody comes in and they're like, okay, we'll we'll get it resolved in 17 years, so... (laughs) What the fuck do I do in the meantime? (laughs) Well, have fun, roomie. (laughs) Looks like we're roommates now. I don't know. That's not my problem. Looks like we're roommates now. (laughs) So, um, let me see what else else happened. Yeah, I hardly think there was a situation where they were like, yeah, let's be roomies. No. Really? They're like, get out. This is my house now. Yeah, get the fuck out. Okay. During that time, most California's families were forced to sell uh, portions of their property to pay for their attorney's fees. In addition, all land commission hearings were held in San Francisco, which created an additional and expensive barrier for Southern California landowners. Mexican-American landowners in general face often insurmountable odds in proving ownership of their lands, which some argue was the intent of the convoluted system. 
I would agree. I would too. Mm -hmm. Mariana Guadalupe Viejo wrote, It requires a lot of work and money that I don't have to create a possible witness and afterwards to pay for notarized affidavits and English translations for each. So that was what one person said. So some, Calif mm -hmm. some Californios, however, attempted to use their positions to influence and power to fight against legal discrimination. Pablo de la Guerra, a Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara landowner, asserted his political influence as a state senator and then lieutenant governor to vocally critique the American legal system, which treated Mexicans as a conquered and inferior race. So basically, they've been doing us dirty mm -hmm. in the U.S. For, this is a long time. So de la Guerra, political influence... Oh, no. Delegata complained that the testimony of white people was taken more seriously in the court system than that of Mexicans. He said a disgraceful distinction between white testimony and ours was indelicately paraded. So Delegata would have to fight even to maintain his right to hold political office. The landmark case, The People versus Delegata, decided that despite charges otherwise, De La Guerra could hold political office in the United States. Nevertheless, Anglos came to dominate the political and economic landscape of California as not even one Mexican family retained their wealth in the early American period. So remember all those other those families that I mentioned that were given a bunch of money? They're all yeah. poor now. They're mm -hmm. all they're all given they're they're all they, they all all their money was taken. Uh, they had to use all their money to prove that they fucking had that it was their land. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in Texas, land grants were never subject to a federally litigated legislated commission, because Texas had attained statehood in 1845. It retained jurisdiction over the entirety of its border regions, and thus claimed exemption from the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. The Texas state government thus took the matter of land grants into its own hands. When Governor Peter H. Bell appointed William H. Borland and James Miller to determine the validity of Spanish and Mexican land holdings in the state. Uh, at its first hearing in Webb County, the Borland Miller Commission faced significant opposition from the local Mexican American landowners who claimed that the commission had been established in order to seize property of Tejanos and take away their full rights. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's definitely what it was. Yeah. And they know it. Mm -hmm. So at this point in time, uh, so California and New Mexico, they're the federal government's problem. But since Texas was its own state, like country for a while, mm -hmm. and then was seceded in, into the uh, U.S., the federal government was, they, they were, Texas were like, we'll do it ourselves. So this is what's going on. So, so this is, so it's not a federal issue. It's a state issue in, in Texas. So Miller and Borland, Borland were able to win over the land-owning elite of the Laredo area. However, by conducting an impartial proceeding, an impartial proceeding, which resulted in all the Tejano families retaining their land holdings. So that's good. In the rest of the state, however, the commission was less favorable to the land-owning claims of the Tejanos, 
In areas of, the, of Southwest Texas, fewer than half of all the land grants were recognized as legitimate by the commission. And many of the ones which were recognized as legitimate were already owned by the white Texans. It's like, we can't win. We can't win, man. <laughs> That's why we got to learn this stuff. This is why it's porn. Mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. So, in addition to using linguistic maneuvers to seize economic and political control, Mexican settlers also used physical violence as a tactic to control the conquered Mexican-American population. Of course they did. Right. In California, Mexican-Americans were driven out of their homes, forced out of mining, forced out of mining camps in gold-rich areas, barred from testifying in court, and gradually segregated into the barrios. There was resistance to this violence as men like uh, Taborcillo Vasquez turned to ban uh, banditry to resist the domination of the Anglos. As a method to keep Mexicans in their place, the Mexican settlers lynched Mexicans. The, oh, the American settlers lynched Mexicans between 1848 and 1860. At least 163 Mexicans were lynched in California alone. Sad story. Yeah. Now I'm going to show a picture of these lynchings. They're, it's very graphic. But TW. I, TW. What does that mean? Graphic. Trigger warning. Oh, trigger, trigger warning. Yeah, trigger warning. Um, but I feel like it is very important to show this type of thing. What do you think, Ruby? Yes, I agree. Even though it's hard to see, mm -hmm. it's we have to have these hard conversations. Yeah. There it is. So how does this photo make you feel? Um, just like it makes, it should make anybody feel like very upset, very, mm -hmm. very upset that this was actually a thing that was normalized. Like there's literally kids right there, mm -hmm. front row. Now, I bet these would be the same people that would sit there and be like, Oh, little Nas X's video with <laughs> my kids cannot see this performance on TV, but you would take your kids to a lynching. Mm. Yeah. So, for the <clears throat> for those who are only listening to the audio version, what do you what do you what do you see here? What does this picture show? Oh, so okay, let me be very descriptive. So it's a black and white photo, of course, um, and the name of the photo is two Mexican-American men lynched in Santa Cruz, California. And it's basically showing two Mexican-Americans hung. Um, their feet are tied. Their, their feet are bound. Their hands are bound in rope. And then you can see the string around their necks, the nooses. And then there's a bunch of people around them, surrounding the bodies just hanging there. There's men, there's kids, there's probably women, and they're somewhere, but yeah. Yeah, so let's, all right, we're done. <laughs> we're, let's, okay, let's move on from that. Okay. Oh yeah, very, very ugly history. Yeah, but it's something that needs to be done. It's a necessary thing. So between 1848 and 1879, the Mexican-Americans across the United States were lynched at an unprecedented rate of 473 
per 100,000 of population, which is a lot. That is a lot. Mm -hmm. Some of these lynchings, lynchings were not instances of frontier justice. Out of 597 total victims, only 60, 64 were lynched in areas which lacked a formal judicial system. So a majority of lynching victims were denied access to a trial, while others were convicted in unfair trials. So Mexican-Americans had no avenues for justice in the early American period. As a result, many of the folk heroes of this period were considered to be outlaws, robbers, social bandits, and freedom fighters. Sounds about right. Mm -hmm. In Texas... Mexican-Americans also resisted the violence in the U.S. settlers. Juan Cartina began the first Cartina War in 1859 when he shot the Brownsville town marshal Robert Shears for brutalizing Cortina's former employees. Cortina raided and occupied the town with a squad of armored men, armed men, and they held the city for several months until they were attacked by a joint effort between the Texas Rangers and the U.S. Army. Led by ah, the Texas Rangers. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you have some opinions on the Texas Rangers? I read some history on the Texas Rangers. Uh, it's very, very bad. And they were led by John Ford and Samuel Heinzelman. So the final battle was fought in March 1860 when Cartina was defeated. Yeah. So there goes that. I mean, I'm I'm sure that there were there was gonna be uprisings. They expected that. But I think it's really, really how do I say hypocritical or ironic. Um, I find it I find it like disturbing, I guess I should say, that they would make up these laws that would excuse Anglo-Americans from massacring, you know, like killing people. Mm. <clears throat> like the, how you said, like frontier justice. Yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> they're, they're just going to make rules and laws that are in their favor. Right. And it's just like, we see that today still. Right, exactly. So now we're done with the uh, early American period. And we're going to move on to the next chapter in Mexican-American history, the late 19th century. Mm. Yeah. And you know what was the first thing to occur in the late 19th century? Was it something bad or something good? It was the American Civil War. Dum, oh, da, right, da, right, da, right. Da, 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 da. So Mexican-Americans played a major role in the Civil War. So Texas which was home to the significant portion of the nation's Mexican-American population, seceded from the Union and joined the Confederate States of America in February 1861. In the Arizona and New Mexico territories, many elite Mexican-American families held views sympathetic to the Confederacy. So in New Mexico, wealthy Mexican-Americans' crop farm families openly supported the slave owners of the South, perhaps due to their own reliance on the forced labor of Native Americans. Yep. So, okay. You want evil, you're the same evil. Y'all are, you know, going to definitely support each other. Right. <laughs> so across the country, Mexican-Americans felt resentment 
toward the U.S. because of the racial discrimination they experienced after the Mexican-American War, like like the instances we just said. So as a result, the result was a mixed dispersion of support and opposition toward the United States. So in New Mexico and California, support among Mexican-Americans was split. So many wealthy landowners in southern New Mexico supported the Confederacy, while most northern New Mexicans fought for the Union. In California, support tended to be stronger in northern California, while many Mexican-Americans in southern California leaned toward the Confederacy. Nevertheless, California remained in the Union. So if you were in that position, Ruby, where would you lean? Union, baby. Union? A lot of us would love to say we would be on the right side of history, but during the after it happened, but during the whole thing, you think during so? the whole thing, I'd still be union. Despite all that stuff that the the um, the union did to you guys. No, I mean, like if I didn't have a choice. But you do have a choice. If I have a choice, I wouldn't be fighting. Period. Oh. <laughs> okay, if you didn't have a choice, you're not gonna still- go get killed. For them, like, over that, like, I mean, like, Mexican-Americans, like you said, were treated like shit. Mm-hmm. Basically, they were lynched. They were killed in big numbers. So, yeah, if someone were to come to me at that point and say, hey, you want to join this war? Uh, no, no, thank you. I'm already at war every fucking day of my life. <laughs> I mean, like, for support. Would you give the union their your support? Be like, union, they're good. I give them a thumbs up. Well, the thing is, like, I'd have you would have to know at that point, like, which, 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 uh, what each side was trying to accomplish, right? Mm-hmm. So, of course, I would weigh out the pros and cons, and if, I think I would more than likely end up supporting the union because mm-hmm. if at least getting, you know, rid of slavery, you know would be a thing that the union wanted to achieve, then I feel like it'd be a move in the right direction at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, so. the whole like slave thing is a deal breaker for you. To keep- yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the Confederates, however, believe that opening the a route to California would aid their cause. So in summer 1861, John R. Baylor led the Confederates to Mesilla, Mesilla and declared the southern portion of New Mexico as the Confederate Territory of Arizona. He then marched into Tucson and declared southern Arizona the second district of the Arizona Territory. In response to this aggression, President Abraham Lincoln appointed Henry Connolly, an Anglo politician who married a Mexican-American family, uh, who married into a Mexican-American family, as the territorial governor of New Mexico. Inspiring confidence against the uh, amongst the Nuevo Mexicanos, the Union Army was soon filled by Mexican-Americans uh, recruits. So, that's great. So the New oh, Mex- well, see, mm-hmm. they, they would have been just like I would have said. Mm-hmm. So, the New Mexico units, known as the New Mexico Volunteers, were led by, led by Brigadier General Diego Archuleta. Lieutenant Colonel Miguel Chavez, or Manuel Chavez, Lieutenant Colonel Francisco Pera, Colonel Jose Guadalupe Gallegos, J. Francisco Chavez, and Captain Rafael Chacon. This massive Mexican-American army was able to destroy the Confederates' hold on New Mexico by March 28, 1862, when Lieutenant Colonel Manuel Chavez 
and his troops destroy the Confederate supply train in the uh, Glorieta Pass and force the Confederate soldiers to abandon the field. So punch in the face. Mm. Am I right? Yeah, take that, Confederates. Yeah, often called the Gettysburg of the West, the Battle of Glorieta Pass effectively ended the Confederates' attempts to take over the Western United States. With the Confederates' surrender of the territory, Mexican-Americans from California were responsible for clearing out all Confederate supporters, including French imperialists who entered the U.S. during Maximilian's rule in Mexico. So, it was because of the Mexican-Americans that the Confederacy did not expand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They didn't go all the way west. Yes. I mean, yeah, west. Yeah. So, we should get some respect for that. Yeah, respect. Respect. Well, maybe, maybe not from the people who still support the Confederacy. <laughs> that doesn't exist. Yeah, be like, uh, it's my heritage. Well, stopping you guys isn't part of my heritage. Oh! I love this. We're getting pumped up. Okay. <laughs> History. So as the last Confederate stronghold of the Southwest, Texas played a major role in the Civil War battles. Wealthy Tejano ranchers such as Santos Benavides were the strongest Texas supporters for the Confederacy. Nevertheless, working many working-class Tejanos fought for the Union Army as they had no interest in living in a social system pres- uh, precedented on unfree labor. So some Tejanos, such as Antonio Ochoa, or Ocoa, had fought against the Texas Confederates from the time of secession. In 1861, Ocoa had in a group of 40 men marched to the Zapata County Courthouse and sought to prevent the town officials from swearing their allegiance to the Confederacy. Ocoa and his men were immediately attacked by Confederate troops and forced to flee into Mexico. There, they met and recruited Juan Cortina, remember him from earlier? Mm-hmm. So, who'd been forced out of Texas at the end of the Force Cortina War. So, Ocoa and Cortina together launched multiple military and economic ta- attacks on South Texas, targeting supply lines and even even assassinating a confederate county judge so after each attack they fled back into the safety of mexico waited for a short time then moved back into texas for the next attack this continued (laughs) (laughs) what that's funny that was tactical well the old hit and run yeah (laughs) so let me see yeah so So they put a they put a floyd mayweather okay Is that what it's called? Because <laughs> he's always like running and he's on the defensive and he uh, hardly he hardly attacks. Yeah. So this continued until Ocoa was executed by the brother of Santo Benavides. So the final battle of the U.S. Civil War was fought in Texas one month after Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox in April 1865. Union forces marched toward Brownsville. Uh, Tejano Confederates responded near the mouth of the Rio Grande and attacked the Union soldiers. While Confederates won this final victory, they were ultimate losers of the war. So all told, an estimated 20,000 Hispanic soldiers fought during the American Civil War. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was the end of the Civil War. Now we're going to move into the next part the Reconstruction Era. So, despite the significant contributions of Mexican-Americans in the Civil War, the community faced a resurgence of discrimination in the Reconstruction Era, 
in the 1870s, the New Mexico Territory saw a massive influx of white settlers and land speculators. So the territory legislator, fearing a gold rush-style land grab, petitioned Congress for protections. So in their 1872 memorial to Congress, the New Mexico legislators argued for a change in federal land laws, which stipulated that in, in the case of a dispute, the owners of the land must present evidence of the original land grant in both English and Spanish. So we're back to that again. So the legislators argued this provided an undue burden to Nuevo Mexicanos since in the territory, very few understand the English language. As migration increased over the course of a decade, the legislator issued more memorials st uh, stressing the need for a board of commissioners to settle disputed land claims. So what are you thinking? Yeah, they definitely had an issue with that, and they started it because they were the ones that started that whole trend of taking over other people's lands. Yeah. But yeah, it seems like that's uh, the burden always rests on the actual landowner. And they knew that what it did before, they knew that it was hard for them to prove it before, and they ended up winning. So they're just going back to that tactic again because they know that it's effective. Right. And what do you think about the whole, like, we did all this stuff for them in the Civil War, and now it's back to business as usual? <laughs> it's the same that they did with the African Americans who fought in the Civil War and were promised freedom and all this other stuff. And they get back home, and it's the same shit. I think they're with, still discriminated yeah. against and everything. Also, I think it also had to do with uh, Lincoln getting killed. Also, that too. To so in Texas, despite disputes between Tejanos and white Americans resulted in an open racial conflict. The Skinning Wars, also known as the Second Cortina War, erupted in the 1870s. After the Civil War. Texas ranchers found themselves with a massive surplus of cattle, and this resulted in a pre uh, precipitous drop of the price of beef. So the cost of cow hides, however, remained relatively high. Because of the high price of hides, disputes soon emerged over mavericks, which in this period were often left to grange in the open range. These disputes resulted in skidding raids where... Young Mexican men would round up disputed herds of cattle and skin them all at once. Oh my god. Mm. Poor cattle. Think? In retaliation, white Americans in South Texas organized vigilante committees, which quickly gained notoriety for their violent tactics. <laughs> in Corpus Christi, the Anglo Vigilante Committee raided Tejano ranches where they would kill every Mexican male burn down all their buildings, and force any survivors across the border to Mexico. What the fuck? But what do you think? What are you thinking? It's so ugly. Mm. It's like, how do you have the right to do all that? They skin the cattle. So. No, I know. I'm saying, like, how do you have the right to force someone, like, go literally, like, force them back into the Mexican territory? Like, jeez. So, Texas Ranger Lender H. McNeely, a former Confederate, imposed punishment against the Tejanos who believed were responsible for the raids, formally ending the race war. So, in West Texas, 
violent ethno-racial tensions exploded by 1877. In September of that year, San Elizario District Judge Charles Howard sought to charge collection fees for Mexicans, Tejanos, and Tiguas when they harvested from the local salt beds. So the residents were outraged by the fees as the salt beds had been considered a public resource for many generations. After Howard arrested two residents who tried to collect salt without paying, the residents revolted against Howard, known as the San Elizario Salt War. This revolt resulted in the death of Howard and four other white Americans. In response, the white residents of San Elizario called upon the Texas Rangers, who along with the U.S. Army, suppressed the rebellion and reasserted Anglo power in the region. Sounds like white supremacy. Yeah. Have you know you're noticing a pattern here, right? Right. Every time we try to we try to fight back, they come up out uh, with three times the power and be like, squash you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So further south, Richard King continued to actively consolidate the King Ranch in the late 1870s, usually through violent and coercive tactics directed against his Tejano Ranchero neighbors. In 1878, one newspaper commentator complained that King's neighbors mysteriously vanish whilst his territory expands over entire counties. So, King, however, did not work alone. As his wealth grew, so did his political influence in the territorial consolidation of Texas. Ranch land was made possible through the Texas Rangers. Mm-hmm. So the rangers in this period took violent measures against Tejano ranch owners to scare them into selling their land. In fact, the rangers were known popularly popularly in the late 1870s as Los Riches de la Canena, an allusion to the belief they acted as King's private security force. Wow. Mm-hmm. So this is where... I'm going to say we should petition the Texas Rangers baseball team to change their name. Yeah. Even like more than the, we did that already with the, uh, the Redskins, the Washington Redskins. They were able to, they finally conceded and and changed their name. Right now it's called the Washington football team now. Mm -hmm. They're still waiting on an actual name. So let's see. Oh uh, yeah, a bunch of stuff, guys, that was not in your history book. You hear all these wars going on and stuff like that. Never in the history theory. <laughs> We shouldn't teach them in school. We shouldn't teach this truth. <laughs> the entire that's history what it book sounds like to me. That says the entire history book should say America is awesome and always yeah. will be. So, <laughs> in the 1880s, for Mexican-Americans was a period of substantial change, marked especially by the emergence of the Southern Pacific Railway. Now, this is known as the Gilded Age. So, we're past the Reconstruction Era. Now, we're into the Gilded Age. So, in El Paso, the, Pacific, the Southern Pacific reached the city in 1881, at which per- point it birthed an immediate economic and industrial revolution as new industries emerged in mining, smelting, and construction. The economic boom was felt throughout the U.S. Southwest and Northern Mexico, and it brought new national Americans 
uh, oh wait, and then brought new national and trans, uh, trans, transnational migrants into the region. So in addition to Mexicans entering the U.S. from Mexico, Chinese laborers came from San Francisco, African Americans fled from the Jim Crow South, and whites came from the East Coast just to see what's going on. So the influx of new capital and migrant labor into the region helped transform Texas from a barren terrain into a tub of international commerce and El Paso emerged as the region's primary economic hub and an international commercial depot. So nevertheless, racial violence continued. Mary Jacques, a British tourist who spent two years in central Texas in the 1880s, wrote that the murder of Tejanos carried a sort of immunity with it as Mexicans appeared to be treated like a dog or perhaps not so well. Treated like a dog sounds more like it. Yeah. <clears throat> so what do you think? So this British person is looking as an, obs as an outside observer wrote mm -hmm. that. So what do you think about yeah. that? I mean, what do you mean what I think about that? Is, is it bad? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, so migration into the United States in this period was also soon com uh, complicated by racial restrictions. At the same time in its history, the U.S. barred an entire national origin group from immigrating when it passed the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. This caused difficulties at the Mexico-United States border since the act officially excluded Mexicans of Chinese descent from entering the U.S. as well. So Chinese inspectors were hired by the United States Customs Service to inspect immigrants at ports of entry in the Southwest. So while to determine if they were Chinese, I guess so. Oh, <laughs> how do they determine that? They're gonna take blood samples or something, or they're, gonna they're just gonna look at them and be like, "Oh yeah, you're you're Chinese." Yeah, they're they're at, they're gonna send it off to Ancestry.com, twenty three and Me. What the fuck? <laughs> While official U.S. policy uh, was to deport all ethnic Chinese immigrants to China, migration policies were slightly revised for Chinese Mexicans who were deported to Mexico instead if they held, if they held Mexican citizenship and had lived most of, the, most of their lives in Mexico or were married to Mexican nationals. So this Chinese inspection force would grow into the U.S. Border Patrol. Mm. So, so it's not because of drugs? No, it was to find out Chinese people oh. from Mexico. You see, guys, finding out some stuff here. <laughs> so, some real good stuff. Mm -hmm. So these continued uh, indig indignity, indig indignities suffered by Mexicans and Mexican-Americans did not go completely ignored. However, in, 18, uh, in 1885, Maria Ruiz de Berton, a Californian Mexican American, published The Squatter and the Dawn, a, a novel set in 1870s San Diego County, uh, where a fictional Amaro fa family clashed with Esquatas, Anglo Americans who improved the Amaro family ranch in order to lay legal claim to the land. So, considered the United States' first female Mexican-American author, Maria Ruiz de Barton, had been politicized through her personal uh, experiences in California after the Mexican-American War. Before the publication of her novel, she wrote 
to her cousin, it cannot be denied that the Californians have reason to complain. The Americans must know it. Their boasted liberty and equality of rights seem to stop when it meets a Californian. (laughs) (laughs) And now we have to beg for what we had the right to demand. You tell it, girl. Oh, snap. So, the publication of Burton's novel coincided with several other important developments in California for Mexican-Americans. The decade witnessed... Uh, the official dismantling of the of Spanish usage in official government documents. Around the same time, the Gilded Age practice of voter suppression emerged to disenfranchise African American peoples from having any say in the functions of government. Wait, so you mean to tell me, Nate, yeah. that the Spanish language was used widely in a lot of documents mm-hmm. back then. Oh, yeah. But then we stopped because we okay. like English. Just so you people know that this is not the first time that <clears throat> people came over here speaking Spanish because it's been like that since, what, the 1800s? Forever. <laughs> well, for a while, yeah. <laughs> for yeah. Mexican-Americans in general, the Gilded Age was a period of abrupt economic change. Political disenfranchisement and economic, oh, uh, demographic displacement. While there was significant immigrant labor entering the U.S., the Southwest from Mexico during this period, through the railroads, it was dwarfed by the tidal wave of Anglo's moving west from New York and other ports of entry. While the 1880s brought major changes, the coming years would emerge as the entrenchment of racial racial animosity. And that is where we'll end it for this episode. Oh, man. This doesn't sound like it's getting any good. Yeah. Any more better for us. Yeah. <laughs> so in the next episode, we'll talk about the rise of of uh, Juan Crow, which is like another deviation of Jim Crow, but specifically Crow. for Mexican-Americans. And then we'll go. I had never heard that term before. Juan Crow. Juan Crow. Yeah. Yeah. So then after that, we'll finish with the uh, late um, with the late uh, 19th century and we'll move on to the 1900s, which will include like the Mexican Revolution and uh, La Montenza de Tejas, like that kind of thing. So that's what we'll do an episode tres, which means tres. which means three, Ruby. I know I know you don't know the Spanish very well. All right. <laughs> Yo sí sé español muy bien. Okay. Very cool. Very and I'm cool. very, very, very proud of my heritage. Yeah. Even though, like I said, Spanish wasn't originally our Mexican thing, but our Mexican language. Mm-hmm. So, but, recap of this of this episode. What do you What are you thinking? I'm thinking that the U.S. just always did whatever the hell they wanted and if you were not white you did not matter and they used you whenever they however they saw fit Mm -hmm. yeah and they enticed you and manipulated you and suppressed you like and killed you like they lynched you like it's 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 a lot to take in Mm -hmm. when you think about it Yep, that is the the ugly reality of history of Mexican Americans in the U.S. 
So yeah, we'll... and uh, don't leave yet, kids. There's still more. Oh yeah, we still got. <laughs> we just barely finished the 19th century. We still after this, we need to talk about the 1900s and then the 2010s, 2010s. and then all that kind of stuff. Uh, oh, and also Juan Crow, and then we'll yes. we'll we'll see what else we can do. All right, guys. We should definitely talk about how it is today. You know, to see if there's still forms of oppression, systems of oppression that, you know, were put in place back then and the effects of it even now. Because a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't know that because of all of that back then, there's effects of it even now. Yeah. Yeah. And then we'll. System. mm -hmm. Then we'll go. Yeah, we'll go into the 2020s once we get there, but we still got a ways to go. All right. (laughs) All right, everybody. (laughs) We'll see you guys next time to talk about Juan Crow, the 1900s and the 1910s. Yes, and I hope you enjoyed everything you learned today. Yes, I know. All I the did. sources will be in the bio. In the bio. All right, guys. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to A Vision Podcast, home of Wacky Talkies, The Kingdom, Evil Exists, and many more.